Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Let's jump into our sermon. Um, if, if, if you would stand with me, we're going to start by reading from John chapter 14, Gospel of John. Uh, John 13 through 17 is what we call the upper room discourse. Um, it's Jesus in the upper room around the same time that the, the Lord's Supper happens talking to his disciples in his final moments before death about what's most important. Literally in hours he'll be arrested. Uh, In less than a day he'll be crucified and dead. These are some of his last words that we have uh, recorded to his disciples. John 14, starting in verse 23. says, Jesus replied, All who love me will do what I say. Uh, My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. I'm telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit... He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Will you read this next sentence with me, church? I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. Now, uh, one of the vision targets we have at Northeast Christian Church is that we hope that every person who calls Northeast their church home would adopt for themselves a rule of life. A rule of life. Do you remember this language? Okay, so for those of you who are new, in street talk, a rule of life just means um, that you would be able to say, I have rhythms and restrictions, both rhythms and restrictions that help me connect with God and resist popular culture. Habits and limitations uh, on your life. Basically, it's a spiritual formation plan that you've intentionally put into place. And uh, we think this is important. So uh, to give you an example here, um, I read a book recently called The Common Rule. Uh, It's by Justin Earley. You can throw the picture of the the cover up there. Great book. Buy it. Please buy it. Uh, In the book, he shares four rhythms and four restrictions that he lives by. Now, what I like about this book for you especially, is it's not like a total nerd book, you know, some PhD talking about Greek and Hebrew or something. This guy is a lawyer. He's very serious about his faith. His faith is a number one priority for him. But he, he's, a, he's a lawyer, uh, struggles with the regular everyday busyness that all of us do. He's got young kids in the home, an anxiety issue. And yet, yet, he would tell you that these four rhythms and these four restrictions actually helped him establish in his life that peace that Jesus promises that the world cannot give. So next slide here, this is his chart 
On his chart, you can see there at the bottom, there are four daily habits and four weekly habits that he practices, four rhythms and four restrictions. I just want to read them to you real quick because I think they're that good. All right, so first, starting with the daily habits, one, he practices kneeling prayer three times a day. So he gets on his knees, prays, usually not that long. Uh, Two, uh, he practices one meal every day with others. Because getting across the table and dining with someone, whether it's family or friends. Three, uh, uh, one hour each day off of his phone. And four, scripture before phone. That means when he wakes up in the morning before he goes to his phone and emails and social media and news and everything, he reads Bible. Uh, Now next, those are daily. Go to his weekly habits. One, he says each week, uh, he wants to have a one-hour conversation with a friend. So like another Christian, whether it's coffee, whether, you know, it's a, a friend that's across the country you get on the phone with or, you know, maybe you have dinner, whatever, one-hour conversation with a friend. Uh, two, he curates his total media consumption time to four hours. Uh, three, he fasts from something for 24 hours. And this doesn't have to be food for you. Uh, a lot of times he does food. This can be something else for those of you who can't do that. But he fasts for 24 hours. And then four, he practices uh, Sabbath, one day each week where he rests from work. Now, in my opinion, that's a great eight. That is a great eight. But I love y'all so much, okay, that at the beginning of this year, I only asked you to commit to two. Two. Do you remember this? On January 1st, I asked our church to commit to one rhythm and one restriction as a New Year's resolution for 2023. Here they are. One, I ask you to commit to the rhythm of a daily prayerful engagement with Scripture. Just daily open up the Bible, reading it and praying through it, what we might call a quiet time. And two, I ask you to, to commit to the restriction or the limitation of actually limiting on purpose the quality and quantity of your screen intake. Now, next week we're going to talk about the rhythm. This week we're going to talk about the restrictions, and we'll get there for a, in just a second. But, but who remembers this from January 1st? Anybody here? Anybody remember this? Okay, a lot of you. Wonder how many of us are doing it. Maybe some. Probably not everyone. And that is because, you see, the idea of limiting our freedom and our autonomy spiritual rhythms and restrictions is not a priority for most of us. Here's what I found out about people, okay? Maybe you found this out. People don't like rules. They don't like rules. Except for the First Amendment, of course. (laughs) We love that rule because it's a rule that says you can't put your rules on me. Kind of sums up the modern sentiment, isn't it? My rights over your rules. Hmm. Now, the aversion to rules starts when you're a kid because you're like, you know, parents are the worst. They're the worst. They're the fun police. <laughs> wee, wee. Hey, this is Connor's dad. Eat your vegetables before your dessert because I like to watch you suffer, you know. Wee, wee. This is Brooke's mom and, you know, you have a curfew because I don't want you to be happy. Wee. Like, that's, that's what you think. When you're a kid, this is how you process it in your mind. And so you grow with, like, this aversion to to authority in your life. Now, as you get older, that sticks with you, though. It sticks with you. And uh, today, uh, as we get older, people, people are calling it either repression or oppression. Repre- re- repression is a self-inflicted limitation on yourself. Oppression is when somebody else puts a limitation on you. And we don't like that, so 
we rebel against any authority, against any standard, or against any discipline on our life. You do you, I do me. You make your truth, I make my truth. You follow your heart, I follow my heart, but just stay out of my way and don't tell me what to do. I don't care about societal norms. Nothing's normative anyways. It's all normal, baby. I don't care about the previous generation and their so-called wisdom. Look at the world. They did really great, I'm telling you. (laughs) And my parents, look at them. They're a mess. Don't care about what they got to say. Oh, and politicians, I don't care about politicians. They're good for one thing, manipulation and deception. So that's two things. Okay. And I don't care about religious authorities either. They're just hypocrites trying to put their ancient bigotry on me. I can't trust anyone. So you know who I'm going to trust? Me. That's the mindset. That's the modern mindset. And so in a culture like that, it's really hard Uh, for us to hear Jesus say, John 14, 23, all who love me, do what I say. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. It's tough. But don't forget, he also says, I have a peace of mind and a peace of heart that I can give you though, that the world cannot give you. But the formula for getting it is not autonomy it's surrender we don't like surrender but you can surrender to God I'm telling you you can surrender to God because believe it or not God is not the sheriff of the fun police his limitations are good Uh, Earley writes in his book he says what if the good life and aren't we all after the good life you know so he says what if the good life doesn't come from having the ability to do what we want Uh, But instead, from having the ability to do what we were made for. Mm. And that's what a rule of life enables you to do. What were you made for? What's your destiny? What should you be doing with your life? Or here's a more granular question. What should you you be doing with your week? This week? Obey God. You'll find out. Uh, Can I speak the last 10% to, to you today? Uh, I'll take your attendance today, by the way, as consent for me to do that. So it's more of a rhetorical question. But uh, let me just let me just let me speak it. Okay, are you are you sure? Are you sure that you know what's best for you? Are you sure? Because you see, you probably uh, you're probably pretty good at picking out your your fashion sensibility, the clothes that you like. You're probably pretty good at that. You're probably pretty good at, at choosing your favorite NFL team. Go Bengals. Uh, but you certainly aren't that good at getting yourself enough sleep, are you? Uh, you're certainly not that good at nurturing your body with healthy foods. Uh, you sure do waste a lot of time on screens. And oh yeah, there's that secret addiction that nobody knows about. Oh, and what about your heart? The deeper issues of your heart. People today say, follow your heart. But do you even know what's going on in there? Probably not. Probably not. That's why therapists exist and we're all realizing today that we need one. Go see a good therapist. I encourage you. And here's what they're going to tell you. You don't even know what's driving you. You don't know what's underneath all that you. 
You got all sorts of like childhood issues and family trauma and nature and nurture that you don't remember or you don't even know exists. And then they're gonna have you fill out one of these guys right here, uh, a genogram. Has anybody ever seen a genogram before? Raise your hand if you've ever filled out a genogram before. Okay, we've got a lot of psychological work to do in the, here at the Brownsboro Campus 11, okay? Because these, okay, so here, let me tell you what these are. Um, it's basically mapping out the generational brokenness in your bloodline. See, this is what you're going to do. Um, you're going you're gonna to map this thing out and go back to grandma, grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandpa, and you're going to see all the emotional trauma, all the medical challenges, all the relational wreckage, all the addiction, all the sin that raised you. And then a good therapist is going to take that, look at it for five seconds and say, we've got a lot of work to do. So I'll just say, any society that looks at you and says, uh, you should just do what you feel, man, is a society that is not taking seriously your past and doesn't actually care about your future. But Jesus says in John 14, he says, obey me. Uh, I'll send the Holy Spirit to help you. And if you do, you will receive a peace that the world cannot give. So big point, big point for the Christians in here today. This is what we believe as Christians. We actually believe that true freedom is found in limitations. Good limitations, God-given limitations. But freedom isn't the absence of all restrictions. It's the presence of the right ones. And that's basically our formational role as pastors here at the church. It's to show you, the, to show you how to lean on the Holy Spirit who actually reminds you and teaches you about Jesus. And you want to know a great way to hear the Holy Spirit? You want to know how to hear the voice of God in your life? Well, there's a rhythm. Daily prayerful engagement with Scripture. And there's a restriction. Limit the quality and quantity of your screen intake. You'll be well on your way. You will hear from God better than you currently are. Now, again, we're going to go to rhythms next week. I'm going to do restrictions today. Uh, so... Let's talk about our corporate restriction, limiting the quality and quantity of your screen intake. Uh, if you don't have some level of limitation on your screen intake right now, you're through. You're finished. You're finished. Because we are living through the greatest revolution in formation that the world has ever seen. I believe that. Okay, so some history for you. Uh, one of the most world-shaping revolutions that happened in recent memory uh, was the Industrial Revolution. It took place mostly in the 1800s. Uh, but what made this revolution so special is that it unlocked new forms of power. Steam, textile industry, like machines. Basically, power shifted from bodies to machines. So society shifted from agrarian to industrial, from farm to factory, if you will. Now, it is so important to notice this. When, when major revolutions like the Industrial Revolution happen, um, they're, they're good, and they unleash incredible prosperity. Prosperity like people could have never imagined before. Prosperity like, you know, your grandparents would look at, and they'd be like, what world do you even live in? And they do it in a relatively short period of time. And this happened in the Industrial Revolution. We became more efficient at manufacturing and production. Uh, some of our great cities in America emerged during this time, and there was like hockey stick economic growth at the end of the 19th century. It was amazing. 
broadly in the United States of America, the standard of living rose. But, but, with prosperity, there's always a trade-off, always. Because you see, when we gain new capabilities, we lose old ones. When we relieve certain burdens, a lot of times we release new burdens. Are you following me? Or in the words of the great Dr. Ian Malcolm from the island of Jurassic Park, he said, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Sounds like something Jesus would say if he was around. I'm just, okay, I'm just saying. Now, back to the Industrial Revolution, though. This happened. This happened. Let me give you some examples. Uh, with men now moving from the farm and working outside the home in the factory, it created strain on the family. So marriages and children suffered from dad not being around as much. On the assembly line, workers now became disconnected from the final product. And, uh, and they lost a sense of job satisfaction. See, before the Industrial Revolution, a carpenter would, like, make a chair in his shop, you know, and sell it on the market to his neighbor. And he would know the story of this chair. This chair is now sitting under my neighbor's table feeding his kids. And there's some satisfaction in knowing you contributed in that way. Fast forward to the Industrial Revolution, and all of a sudden we got people on a line turning a wrench 10,000 times a day. And you don't see the finished product. You don't know its story. You're just told faster, faster, faster to keep up with the production pace. In fact, the human being just becomes a, another cog in the machine. And a dehumanization began to happen at work. So here's the kicker. It was actually during this time of peak industrialization that prohibition was passed in 1917. Isn't that fascinating? Prohibition. Can you imagine? All right, kids, you know what prohibition is? Alcohol was made illegal in America. It was actually the 18th Amendment in the Constitution. And it sounds unbelievable. But believe it or not, it had an 86% approval rating among the general population. So the question is, how? How? Why were so many people for putting a lid on alcohol? Well, it's because substance abuse had gotten that bad. Uh, some hypothesize that people had experienced so much relational and emotional trauma from the shift to an industrial society. And so there was a loneliness that came that they'd never experienced before, a disillusionment, a relational fallout, a loss of purpose and pride at work. And it was basically what we would call today a mental health crisis. Our pursuit of efficiency and profit gave us a higher standard of life, but it also lowered the quality of life at the same time because it undermined what it means to be a human. Now, I recall that history for you uh, because I want to take the Industrial Revolution. I actually want to map it on top of the, in, the, the revolution that we're experiencing right now. All right, so you ready? Hold, that, hold all that in your mind. Um, uh, so ben Sass is uh, the current president of the University of Florida. He's former senator of Nebraska. Also, um, a historian tra trained, has a PhD from Yale. And uh, he actually makes the case that we are living right now through a revolution even bigger than the Industrial Revolution. In fact, he argues that when future historians write our chapter in their history book, 
The headline of our chapter will not be political polarization. It will not be COVID. It will not be any of the culture war issues that we're duking out in the public square every day. Those will be footnotes. So the real headline of our chapter in the history book someday will be the revolution in internet technology. Screens. And it's all happened so fast. And I agree with them. I agree. In fact, I believe that the real impact of the internet revolution isn't just in the realm of scientific progress or global communication or economic growth or the speed of information traveling around the world. I think the real impact of it is in the realm of formation. The tech revolution has mutated into a spiritual formation dynamo. It's hard to resist. Let me show you, okay? Let's start with entertainment media. Just look at how it's changed over the course of this revolution. Um, We'll start with a picture. Kids, repeat after me. This is a VHS. A VHS. Now, scientists call this a fossil. But uh, (laughs) what you would do is you would take this VHS. uh, It's been in 1977, okay? And you would put this VHS in a VCR. This is a VCR. And, and when you would do that, it would play a movie. But it would also take an hour to rewind before you start it, so please be kind and rewind. And also, don't make copies of that VHS or else the FBI is coming for you. But if you know, you know. Now focus, y'all. Stay focused. Do you remember where you got these VHS tapes from? These, these wonderful places like, like Blockbuster. Just curious, have you ever been to a Blockbuster? Raise your hand real quick. Kids look around, these are the old people. At its height, there were 9,000 locations. And uh, while Blockbuster was the giant in home video, they made one key mistake. In 1997, DVDs came out, and there was this startup company that challenged Blockbuster's brick-and-mortar model. Uh, Instead of having people come to a store, this company actually would send DVDs to your house in the mail with no late fees. Anybody know this company's name? Netflix. Yes, kids. Netflix started by sending DVDs through the United States Postal Service. Look at how they've grown. And they did grow. They grew fast. By the year 2000, uh, Netflix was a considerable competitor for Blockbuster. So Blockbuster had the opportunity to neutralize the competition by purchasing Netflix for a whopping $50 million. But they declined. They stuck to their guns. And today, depending on what website you look at, Netflix is worth somewhere between 100 to 200 billion dollars. And Blockbuster's closed. (laughs) There's literally one Blockbuster left. It's open somewhere in Oregon, and it is kept open by Gen X nostalgia. (laughs) Streaming services now rule. And back to what we said earlier, with this technological revolution, there are enormous benefits. We have more shows and content available to us than ever at the click of a button on just like every topic for a small monthly fee and you don't even got to leave your couch. But 
these platforms and their shows are so addicting by design. By design. They're filmed in long form seasons with hooks at the end of each episode and this feature called autoplay that will start the next one for you five seconds later even if it's past bedtime. And with all this time face to screen, we spend far less time face to face with real people. And even when we are with real people, like what's the code of casual conversation now? What do we talk about? One, hey, how are you? Two, oh, that weather. And three, are you watching any good shows? We're obsessed, obsessed. And the hard thing is that the messages of these shows are usually not all that Christian. They often play to our worst lusts of sex and violence. They cast a vision for relationships, identity, and purpose that run against the grain of God. But we binge them. Binge. Like, that's the language we use. We binge Netflix. Now, I've said this before, but like, in what other context is binging anything good? Him a binge eater. Oh, great, man. I'm a binge drinker. Your mommy would be so proud. No, we would never say that. But if somebody's like, you know, hey, what are you going to do this weekend? I'm going to binge an, another, another season of Bridgerton. Oh, you go, girl. Treat yourself. And so we are discipled by Netflix. What about news media? We gotta speed up here. Um, there was a time where there were only three news outlets, you know that, three major news outlets. NBC, CBS, and ABC. Um, it was about 1980 though when CNN became the first 24 hour news outlet. The model was met with suspicion at first. How will they ever fill 24 hours a day, seven days a week with news coverage? They figured it out. Now when you have a 24 seven news cycle, uh, what you got to do is you got to work to keep people's attention. You got to work. And what they discovered over four decades of doing this is that there are two things that grab people's attention. One is conflict and the other is hate. So if you can run a story about a conflict of the people that they hate, then the public cannot look away. And the more outrageous, the better. So what has this evolution given us? Well, it's given us polarized and partisan news networks that sensationalize everything, but we just can't look away. We're getting our information today about the world through the lens of partisan, clickbaity news. And so we are discipled by Fox, by BuzzFeed, by Breitbart and the Huffington Post. And look, we can't escape any of it. There are no sacred spaces where these voices are forbidden from, not even church, because we have these digital appendages we carry around with us everywhere. Supercomputers that fit in our pocket. And, uh, and these smartphones are full of apps that beg for your attention nonstop with dings and vibrations and flashing banners every five seconds. Like if, if your little kid followed you around all day, interrupting you as much as your phone did, you would put it in timeout. And these phones have these things on them called social media platforms. We don't even got time. Mm, do we have time? No, we don't got time. Tick, TikTok, 
Instagram, Facebook, you've heard me talk about this before. You wanna talk about spiritual deformation? Look, everything's good in its own proper context. Okay, most things can be good in, in their proper context, most things. I think social media could in its proper context. But the statistics are in, y'all. The current way that we are using social media and our smartphones, it's not healthy for us. It's not good. Just look to science. Psychologist Gene Twangy is one of the leading researchers on how the smartphone and social media is destroying young people. And I could sum up her research for parents in one sentence. You ready? She writes, if you were going to give advice for a happy adolescence based on our data... Uh, It would be straightforward. Put down the phone, turn off the laptop, and do something that does not involve a screen. Now, for those of you who don't think this is a problem, I I don't know what else to say. Okay, I'll give you three pieces of evidence. Three. Ready? Number one, people can't sit at the dinner table without putting their phone on the table. It's a problem. Two, uh, people can't drive their cars without checking social media. Because, you know, like this two-ton ball of metal that I'm driving at 70 miles per hour isn't more important than Cody's Instagram story. And three, you want to keep it real, three, some of you in here can't even go to the bathroom without your phone. You know who you are, and that's a problem. Oh, come on. You know who, this, it's most of the people in this room. You go in, you lock the door, you disappear for 20 minutes. Your kids set up a tent village right outside the bathroom door. <laughs> mommy, mommy, mom, mom. And you're like, leave me alone. Eat, eat whatever snack you want, okay? Just leave me alone, man. Oh. Okay, this is too much information, but you know scientists have done studies on the amount of fecal matter that are on iPhones? One out of six, one out of six phones has, has okay, I'm just, so do the, do the math in this room. I'm just, anyways. It's science. We are living in unprecedented times. Uh, it's being called the attention economy. Social media outlets, news outlets, consumer businesses, political parties, streaming services, they all see your attention as a scarce commodity to colonize. So they distract us and addict us because if they can win your attention, they can sell you and they can shape you. So that's why I'm just wondering out loud today, just wondering, maybe, just maybe, we need another prohibition. Except this time we aren't prohibiting alcohol, we are prohibiting something at least as dangerous. Uh, And I'm sure people would look back on us a hundred years from now and they'd be like, they were so extreme, what were they thinking? They were crazy for regulating all that, but they're not here to see the societal wreckage. I am, I'm a pastor, I see it every week, every week. We are the wealthiest, most connected people in human history and yet Amid extraordinary prosperity, people are just sad. Our relationships are shallow. Our our communities are collapsing. 
There's a loneliness epidemic, an opioid epidemic, a suicide epidemic, gun violence epidemic. People don't trust society's core institutions anymore. We're dismantling the family. Marriages don't last. We've descended into this sort of like secular darkness of identity confusion and purposelessness. And there's this boiling rage that just keeps coming out of all of us. Did you know that life expectancies uh, in America has dropped three years in a row now? It's the lowest it's been in two decades. We're not okay. And if the government won't regulate it, somebody has to. So I want to ask you to try. Okay, I ask you to try. Uh, so today, it's your moment. I want you to pull out this very valuable gift that I gave you. If you got one on the way in the door, you pull out this valuable gift, this clasp envelope. Um, it, it's 14 cents. That's how much I love you. That's how much I care about your spiritual formation. And I want you to do something really scary, but really brave today. Should it take that old so-called smartphone of yours? Should you put it in the old envelope here? Close it up. You see the clasp? Should you close the clasp just like that? Mm. Bonus points for anybody who put their phone on D and D before you close the clasp. All right, now, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't say have side conversations, okay? Come on back, come on back. Look. Congratulations. Together, we just limited our screen intake. You're so brave. And now that you've practiced, here's your actual homework. Uh, for the next 14 days... I want you to do this. Not all day, every day. I have some specific scenarios for you. This is why I wrote, by the way, one through 15 on the front. 15 will be the third Sunday of this series. Uh, Terrence is gonna preach. He's gonna close the series out. Powerful message, right? From now until that Sunday, I want you to actually envelope your phone during key strategic times of the day. There are three. Are you ready? One. Uh, one hour a day. I want you to envelope your phone one hour a day. You can choose the hour. Only rule is it can't be while you're sleeping. Cheaters. I enveloped it for seven hours a day, Tyler. Nah, okay. Two, two, I want you to envelope your phone during every meal with loved ones. And guess what? If you're eating with another human being, that is a loved one. So every meal with loved ones, okay, I want you to envelope your phone and put it out of sight. Or even better, if you're doing this with your family, everybody throw your, your little envelopes in the middle of the table just so you can show each other how much you actually love each other. Uh, and then third, I want to ask you to do this during church, during church. Now, one exception here, if you have kids and they're in the kids' department, this is how the kids' department gets in touch with you. So you're welcome. Just slide it under the chair. They can't get you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You can't do that. You can't do that. They might need you. So if you're, if you're here with your spouse... One of you is allowed to keep it out, but it's got to be the more responsible one of the two of you. And I'll let y'all talk that out over chips and salsa after church. 
Now I'm just, I'm, listen, listen, okay, look, look up here. This is such a small task. It really is such a small thing. But I'm asking you to participate in a little thought experiment with me that costs 14 cents and lasts 14 days. And if you do it, it might change your life. In fact, I would go as far to say that the more you're willing to do this, the more it will change your life. So for the overachievers in the room, I have a few more ideas for you. This is just bonus. This is just bonus. But here's a few more moments where you might consider enveloping your phone. On vacation, I don't know, maybe you don't have to frame every moment of vacation and maybe this will be the next best post and you can just enjoy it. Um, For longer periods of focused work, I believe especially for creatives that you can't do deep work if you have a phone within reach. Uh, On a date, Envelope your phone, just leave it in the car. While you're with your kids, maybe you're wrestling on the floor with your kids or playing dolls or, or at, a, at a sporting event or, or they're home from college for the weekend. Just envelope your phone. And also during your quiet time with God. See that hand in the back, go ahead. Yeah, Tyler, I do my quiet time on my phone. Get a real Bible, man. <laughs> get a real Bible. Get, get your verses from the day from your phone, envelope it, then open the real Bible and go, go from there. I'm just saying, this is how you get distracted. Middle of your quiet time with God. All right, now I wanna prepare you. I wanna prepare you. This is my advice, because I've tried this. I'm not very good at it. You're probably better than me, but I'll try this. Um, it's gonna be harder than you think because you're addicted. So um, if you put your phone on silent, you put it in an envelope, you put it out of sight, the first thing you're gonna feel is this sense of loneliness. Like someone just left the room. I kid you not. You'll feel cut off from the world, like you're missing something. And then all of a sudden, a few minutes later, your brain will start churning and it'll, uh, it'll start telling you all the little reasons that you just need to check it real quick. You just need to pull it out real quick to look that thing up on, on Google. You just pull it out real quick to, to check the time of the game that you wanna watch later. Just pull it out real quick because you gotta make sure that that thing on your schedule is in the right spot for tomorrow before you forget it, right? It's insane how quickly your brain will start trying to convince you that you need this. And it's also sad at how dependent on this we've become. Wow. Some of you are in pain right now. It's only been 90 seconds, okay? Just chill, just chill. So hey, if you like practical steps at the end of a message, this is as practical as it gets. Can it get more practical than this? I'm asking you to try this for two weeks. One, envelope your, throw the graphic back up there for me again. Envelope your phone, one hour a day. Two, envelope your phone during every meal with loved ones. Three, envelope your phone in church. Tyler, how am I supposed to take a picture of the back screen? We'll send it out to you, okay? Send it out to you. All right, let's close and, uh, and we'll, we'll take communion. And, and get out of here. I would just remind you today. You don't need to take it out, okay? Just, just put it under your seat. You're good. I would just remind you today that Jesus himself is the ultimate example of this. Uh, and he gave the Holy Spirit to help us do it. He doesn't ask us to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't given us the power for. And we have the spirit of Jesus in us, and Jesus did this. Now, no, he didn't envelope his phone every day. Uh, But I would suggest to you one of the defining characteristics of Jesus' life was his willingness to give up autonomy for the sake of obedience to God and love for us. 
Jesus chose to limit his power and limit his autonomy. He gave up his divine First Amendment rights, if you will, for God and humanity. Think of his story. Think of it. It is a story marked by voluntary self-limitation. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home, never held political office, never wrote a book, never got married, never had sex, never uh, only had a few, died, with, died homeless and poor with only a few friends, never experienced the world, if you will. Yet he was God. His story starts 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, just like what happens 385,000 times every day. He was born uh, to an unwed teenage single mom. Uh, And in so doing, he actually limited his omniscience and his omnipotence. Think about it. The Bible says that the kid Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. So how does an all-knowing, all-powerful God grow in wisdom and stature without some level of voluntary self-limitation? Are you following me? So Jesus was born. And his parents were poor, dirt poor, living paycheck to paycheck. The only place they had to lay their newborn was in a feeding trough for livestock. The one who owned all the riches of the heavenly realms became poor for our sakes. And I would ask you, how in the world does the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills be given a bed covered in straw and manure without some level of voluntary self-limitation? Until 30, Jesus lives a pretty unspectacular life. He took up the family trade as a construction worker. And I would ask you, how does the one who built the universe accept the demotion of building tables and roads without some level of voluntary self-limitation? Then at the age of 30, he put down his hammer and hard hat and he decided to become a traveling preacher, moving from city to town to temple teaching. Uh, It is said that Jesus taught with authority, unrivaled by anyone in history. It is said that he healed the sick, fed the hungry, employed the average, befriended the social misfits. And again, I would ask you, how does the one who commands the worship of legions of angels accept the demotion of preaching to disinterested humans and discipling betrayers? without some level of voluntary self-limitation. And he did it all in three years, three short years. He was put to death at the end of it by the governing powers of his day. And one last time I would ask you, how is it that the one who humbled pharaohs and humbled kings come to be crucified by an emperor without some level of voluntary self-limitation? How is it that an immortal, eternal God even dies? without some level of voluntary self-limitation for you and for me. But he did, he died. And as he died, some thought he had gone, uh, gone mad. Some thought he was starting a civil war. Some thought he had lost the war. But Jesus knew that his obedient self-limitation wasn't losing a war, it was winning one. And he won the war. And when he won the war, and when he defeated death, he made a way for our peace a peace the world just simply cannot give. So I want you to reflect on that peace today as we transition into a time of communion. Think of what he chose to lack for the love of God and humanity. See, in Jesus, we see this simple truth. True freedom is found in limitation. And for those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, he has given us 
his Holy Spirit to help. So one of the best ways to follow him today is to do it again. Limit your life within the will of God. Limit your life for the sake of others and you'll find the peace that you truly desire.